A wonderful time of singing this morning, wasn't it? Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. And uh, if you don't have one, there should be one in the chair underneath you. It'll be in the New Testament book of uh, Galatians. What adult wants to cry like that right now? There are several, I'm sure. As uh, Hansley reminded us of this morning, before we sing that new song together, the Reformation song, we uh, have been talking for weeks about the five solas from the Reformation. Solas is the Latin word for alone, and we sang that several times this morning. But those five that we have been talking about and will today and for one more week are that people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and for God's glory alone. Uh, and we've been giving something away each week as a way to remind each other of these and hopefully be able to share them. And I have a nifty cup with all five on it. Now, before you already get your hand up, here's the conditions. I'm looking for someone who would take this to work, drink it at work, and actually use it as a way to talk about your faith. Now we have multiple hands up. So let's have a leg wrestle. All right, no? Stacy put her hand down at that point. All right, she says inappropriate. Come on. I don't know why that would be inappropriate. All right. You're welcome. It really was the shirt that won football fans. All right, today we'll be talking about faith, or sola fide. And of the five, this is definitely, I think, the most difficult concept for us to grasp. And so we're going to go right to a great passage that will unpack, us, unpack it uh, for us well. It's a long text, but I want to try to give the whole sense of it, and so we'll just read it together, and then we'll talk through it. So Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 15, and go all the way through 3.14. So follow along with your own Bible, if you would. Galatians 2.15. Paul writes this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, meaning Paul was speaking originally to Jewish people, people born into the covenant of the Old Testament, and he's saying right from the beginning, that didn't make us right with God. Something else has to happen. And what is it? Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. 
And now comes one of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible, as we sang about. And I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, one translation says, you Galatian idiots, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Sola fide, faith alone. But what is faith? Well, the answer to that might require more careful study than you might initially think. In this short book of Galatians, it's only six chapters, faith comes up 23 times. And the verb form of the word faith, believe, is in there another three. And so in Galatians, faith is everywhere from start to finish. And the real heart of the whole book is chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, which so eloquently describes faith. So what is faith? Well, I think before we can answer that question, we've got to do a little legwork. We all want to be right. Now quit nudging your neighbor, I'm talking to you. We all want to be right. From the child who crumbles into a tantrum when losing a card game, to the way we decide what gifts to buy a friend, which is essentially what did that person buy me and I've got to buy something a little more expensive? From the argument with the roommate over who left those dirty dishes 
to the way we talk about our own personal views on things like politics and sports. All of us battle the temptation to be right or to feel right at any cost, don't we? And this desire to be right in the stuff of everyday life many times flows out of a deeper desire, the desire to feel right inside. In, in other words, to feel like we've got it together morally, intrinsically. You see, human beings are people well acquainted with the absence of being right, which is guilt. What do you feel guilt about today? It's rhetorical, of course. Guilt is the awareness that something we did, and even who we are, is wrong. Every one of us has felt the sting of guilt. Why? Well, we ought to, because we're not right. We all have an incredible capacity for all forms of evil. And so our, our push to be right in the stuff of everyday life is just seeking to put a Band-Aid over that internal sense that I'm really not right. And so our lives every day are filled with the effort to try to cover up guilt. And yet it doesn't work. Except for those whose consciences have been fried. The, the Scripture uses the word seared. Like the image is an iron burning a hole into something. Your conscience, that can happen to it. It can be seared to the point that you really feel little guilt. But for those of us who haven't reached that point, we are aware of that nagging sense that something is not right. There's a rightness lost. Now, what our guilt is crying out for is something to make us righteous. It's, it's crying out for somebody to fix us. And so, in the language of the Bible, this is called justification. Justification is to be declared not guilty. It's to be pronounced right with God. You still with me? This will be the most complex of all five of these sermons. But crucial to the stuff of everyday life to grasp. Really, the question we're addressing today is the same question as last week. It, you may remember what we said Martin Luther struggled with, that great reformer. He struggled with the question, how can sinful people be right before a holy God? Well, Galatians 2.16 tells us, it tells us that no one is justified by works of the law. Now, that's referring to the Old Testament, specifically Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Old Testament. That is what's technically called the law. How does a people get right with God who are not right with the law. How does that happen? I doubt any of us woke up thinking about that 
That's not the pressing question on our minds. But, but let me put it a different way in our cultural context today. Why is it that being more moral than your neighbor or your classmate or your coworkers or your family won't make you right with God? Why is it that looking better than the next person won't fix that internal sense of guilt? Why is it that no amount of good you or I could ever do can quiet that inner voice of guilt? Well, maybe an illustration would help. It works like this. Let's say at work you are not committing adultery, but your coworker is. So the temptation then is what? It's to feel better about yourself because he's doing that, but you're not. But the problem with that is, if statistics are right, you might not be committing adultery, but after work you go home and you look at porn. That's no better. But if you don't do that, then the temptation is to smugly look down on everybody else who is doing one of those two things. And that's no better than those two. There is no escape from this. Because apart from Christ, even our lack of sin turns into sin. And so there's guilt everywhere we turn. We can't get away from it because it's in us. And what's in you goes with you everywhere you go. Following laws in order to earn righteousness doesn't work because we won't, and in fact, we can't obey the law. We are sinners by nature and by choice, so we don't have the power to fully obey. We're in bondage to sin such that if we do the right things, then down deep where nobody sees, we do them for the wrong reasons. We can't be declared right with God by obeying His laws because it's impossible for us to obey His laws. So think of an Old Testament example. Think of King David, one of the most famous people in the whole Bible. King David was an incredible man, king of Israel at its very height wrote many of the psalms we read that help us understand the very heart of God. But did David obey the law? David failed in some of the big ones. Not even David was right by obeying the law. So is there any way out of this mess? Yes. The only way for sinners to be made right with God, to be righteous according to the law, is for somebody not guilty to do it for you. Somebody who doesn't have this same complex that all of us do to get us out of it. You see, being in bondage means somebody else who isn't in bondage has to be the one to set us free. Now, this is where Christianity is utterly unique among all the world's religions. Because Christianity doesn't say, do enough and that will get you right with God. But rather, 
God has done everything for you, even at the cost of his own life. That's incredible news. That's the gospel, that God pronounces people right with him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This Galatians 2 and 3 is the the very heart, the very essence of the gospel, which is what theologians call substitution, meaning Christians, let me speak to you, that God imparted or imputed your sin to Jesus so that as Jesus died, your punishment for sin also died. You died. And as Christ was raised to life, then his life was imputed to you. I know you've heard that before, but isn't that wonderful? Rightness or righteousness is what everybody wants and needs. And justification is the answer, the only answer. That we can be made right not by what we do, but by what he has already done. Now, with all of that in mind, look again at those two verses, 15 and 16 of chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know. Do you know? We know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So what? So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Why? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Friends, justification is not a process. It's not earned by people. It's not infused with our best efforts. It's not God's grace plus what I can do And those two join forces. It is not by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're ready to answer the question we started with. What is faith? What is it? If it's the vehicle through which people can be made right with God, then what is it actually? Faith is a tough, tough word for us in 2017. Because 99% of the time, the way we hear it used is not what Galatians is talking about. And so hang with me a few minutes, and let me see if I can explain that. Many times when we hear the word faith in everyday life, it means something more like superstition or subjective personal opinions. You have faith, I have faith, everybody has faith, and it, it, it's all right. Or, or hope. Like we might say, I, I, I hope in Christ. Somebody else might say, well, I hope you'll come over for dinner. What, what do they mean by that? It, it, it means maybe, maybe not. Depends on how I feel that day. We think of faith like that. Faith is not wish fulfillment. It's not a leap in the dark. None of these things actually get at the word faith in Galatians. Now, the pastors who led the Reformation, and more importantly, the Bible itself, teaches that sinners are justified by faith 
alone. But a huge challenge for us today is that culturally, and even in many, many, many churches, we're not taught sola fide. Instead, we're taught something more like sola sinceritate. What is that? That is sincerity alone. And so it simply sounds like this. I'm glad you believe in something. You have faith, I have faith, we all have faith. Just believe. And if you're sincere in that belief, that's all God expects. Friends, that's, that is, if you haven't heard that, then you simply haven't talked to a non-Christian in the last week. You're not paying attention to what you read or see on TV. Or maybe even what you're own heart pulls you towards believing. Sincerity alone. Now, there are all kinds of examples, though, that show us how silly this is. How it is internally inconsistent. I'll admit this is an extreme example, but it will make the point clear, and so I do it for that reason. 20 years ago this year, 39 people dressed themselves in identical clothes, put on identical Nike tennis shoes. They all took sedatives, chased it down with a little bit of vodka, laid down in bed, covered themselves with a purple shroud, and then finished it off with a bag over their head. It's the largest mass suicide on U.S. soil in American history. Why did they do that? They had faith. These 39 people were part of what you may remember. Some of you weren't born yet. Man, am I getting old. They were part of a cult called Heaven's Gate. And their leader, Doe, taught them that the comet, Halley's Bop, was coming. And behind it was a UFO. And if they would commit suicide by faith in a particular way, then God would catch them up in this comet and they'd go to live in the kingdom of heaven with him. And 39 people believed that enough to kill themselves. And so in a wealthy mansion outside of San Diego, 20 years ago this year, this group all died by faith. Now, Doe, their leader, was a self-declared space-aged shepherd. Now, these 39 people clearly had faith. And they were really sincere. But that's not biblical faith. That's not saving faith. Why? Because if you don't hear anything else today, I hope you hear this. The object of faith determines the worthiness of the faith. And so the, the object is everything. Was dough a worthy object of faith? No. He was a nut job. He had absolutely no proof that anything he claimed was actually true. 
Galatians says the object of faith is Christ. So is Christ a worthy object of faith? Well, you've got to decide that for yourself. Nobody else can do that for you. But study the evidence. And the evidence between the two, Doe versus Jesus, couldn't be more stark. The object of faith is the critical issue. Now we're finally ready to define faith. Faith, in the most clear way I can figure out how to describe it. And for you math nerds, you're about to geek out because we're going to use an equation. All right? Faith in the Bible is knowledge plus agreement plus trust. Where there is knowledge, agreement, and trust, there's biblical faith if Jesus is the object. So, Knowledge about what? Well, about Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. Where, the, where there's understanding about the historical facts of who Christ is and what Christ has done and what he's doing now. But not just knowledge about it, but agreement that that, in fact, is what happened and that it matters. But not just knowledge, not just agreement, but then personal trust in Christ. That is what Paul was talking about when he talked about faith over and over and over and over in the book of Galatians. If any of those are missing, someone may be sincere, and they may have a type of faith, but it's not saving faith. It's not faith that can resolve guilt. It's not faith that brings justification. Now, that's theological. Let's put it just in the stuff of everyday life. That's theological too. But let's pull back from the Bible for a second and just think about something normal. Food. All right? No. So, Americans don't lack knowledge that if you eat bad stuff, it's bad for you. But but we are one of the most unhealthy groups of people, not us, America. We're one of the most unhealthy countries in the world. Why? Well, be because there's not the agreement that it matters. Therefore, there's not the trust that if you eat well, your chances of being healthy are higher than if you don't eat well. So, we can have knowledge, but not agreement and trust, and the effects will show. The same thing is true spiritually. You might acknowledge up here who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but unless there's an agreement that that changes everything, then there won't be trust. Are you still with me? Biblical faith. I hate math, but the equation works. Biblical faith is knowledge, agreement, and trust. Let's see if an analogy would help. Anybody in the room, this one's not rhetorical, anybody in the room been rock climbing and repelling? Any crazy folks? A few. All right. You are my heroes. All right, here's the deal. There's an equation for that too. 
Rope plus harness plus belay equals you don't die. <laughs> All right? So you put the harness on. The rope gets attached to the harness. And you begin to climb. You don't really need trust to start the climb. But the moment you get up high, the moment you lean back into that harness, that's the moment of faith. Right? Because in that moment when you lean back, you're putting your trust that the rope will hold, that despite how you've eaten, the harness will not break, and that the, the belay, the person at the bottom, will trade his weight for yours, will save you. Friends, faith in Christ isn't a work. It's not something you earn. that you lean back into the harness of grace and trust Jesus to belay your soul. That's Christianity. That's the moment of faith. Now, how do you get that? If that's what faith is, then how do you get it? Well, you don't muster it up. The passage we looked at last week, Ephesians 2, says that faith is a gift, that it comes from God. And so if you're hearing this and you've never exercised faith, you've never sat back in the harness of grace and trusted Christ, then ask Him for it. Ask Him for the faith to believe. He's an incredibly generous God. So specifically to those in the room who haven't trusted Christ, do you agree with the basic facts about who Jesus is and what he's done? Do you know the facts and do you agree that they matter? If so, then all it takes is leaning back into grace. Trust in Christ. That is the most crucial moment of your entire life. And not just your guilt on earth, but your entire eternity hangs on it. Won't you trust Him? Christ as the object of faith is worthy of your trust. Now to the Christians in the room, it is entirely possible that we start our Christian lives by faith, but then slip back into works. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, idiot Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? So did you become a Christian? Did you get saved? Was your guilt resolved by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you hear it? And what's he talking about? Well, this letter was written to a region of churches in a region of the country and the region of the world called Galatia. It's in what's modern-day Turkey. And apparently what had happened was Paul went, started these churches, people accepted this message, came to know Christ, were baptized, became members of the church, and then Paul left to go do the same thing in a new place. False teachers came in after Paul and began teaching. It's not knowledge plus agreement plus trust equals faith. It's knowledge plus agreement plus trust plus obeying Jewish customs and following the Old Testament law. That's what actually saves. And so their, their ground for confidence eroded. And they began thinking, I've got to maintain this Christianity through my effort. Now, friends, you and I are tempted by the exact same thing. Sure, it might not be the same laws, but the heart, as Calvin said, is a perpetual factory for idols. And so we can remake all kinds of things into the object or the effort through which we can be saved, can't we? How do you know if you're doing that? Well, do you have a harder time praying after you've really screwed up? According to God, you are ever been as welcome to, before Him when you have committed the most heinous, awful sin you can imagine as you were before. Because you're accepted not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of Christ's works. The dear Christians in Galatians began on the right path, but got con confused and wandered off into works. The same thing can happen at Church on Mill. So what do we do about that? Let me end this morning with a few strategies to encourage us to walk in faith, to walk in the gospel. Because this is an ever-present danger. Number one, I want to encourage you to begin the day resting in Christ. To start the day. So the alarm goes off. You hit snooze. You fall back asleep. The alarm goes off again. And what do you do? Don't hit snooze again. Instead... Before you even get up, before your feet hit the ground, start praying, saying, God, thank you for another day. Thank you that no matter what I do or don't do today, I'm already declared right with you. Thank you that no trial external, no obstacle internal can change that. 
Thank you that I can work hard today to grow up in my faith. But thank you that I don't earn my faith. Thank you that it's already been given to me. And today, may I walk in that faith. Start the day before you do anything else, reorienting your mind to faith in Christ. And then in the day, confessing sin and resting in Christ. Now, why in that order? Because guess what? It, even if you're a lazy bum and you're only up two hours and you go back to bed already, between whenever you get up and whenever you go to bed, there's going to be some sin in the middle. And so Christians confess their sin to God. They repent, not to change heaven or hell, but to stay in fellowship, in right relationship, in sweet communion with God. And so bring those sins to Him. Confess them. Acknowledge them. And then just rehearse the truth of the gospel. God, thank you that you already died to justify me and that I am forgiven and free in you. May the last thing you do before you start sawing logs be the reminder of faith in Christ. The object is the saving one, Jesus himself. He has saved you. And then everything else in between, relate it to the gospel. Relate everything to Christ from sun up to sun down. Learn how to see life through the eyes of faith. That's something that will take the rest of life. And so if you want to avoid slipping back into works, start the day with Jesus, end the day with Jesus, do everything else in between, Abiding, talking to Christ. And finally, see all of these things as both individual and communal responsibilities. Now, what do I mean by that? Friends, we'll never do this well unless we're growing in our knowledge of God. And so we've got to be opening our Bibles, reading it, so that we'll be reminded over and over and over and over of who God is, what God has done for us, who we are because of God, and now how we're to live. And we'll never do that as an individual activity. We'll never continue doing it alone. It takes each other. And so we've got to see these not simply as stuff we do alone, but things we do together so we can grow up in Christ. And so that means getting in discipling relationships is critical. Seeing not our jobs, but our church as the centerpiece of what drives our schedules is absolutely critical to walking in faith. Friends, this is the life of faith. Start the day with Jesus, end the day with Jesus, everything in between with Jesus. And seeing this, we don't do this alone, but we have graciously from God a family of faith. May we help each other to hold fast to Christ in faith as Christ holds fast to us.
Sola fide, faith alone.